Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 70 with Aliza Eliazarov. I think that a lot of folks maybe haven't ever considered a turkey, you know, or thought about a goat or looked at several different photos of a goat to see how different each breed looks and why, or to even understand how farm animals, livestock, and poultry arrived in America. Folks don't know. You know, how would you know unless you really thought about it, you know? Yeah. Did you ever think you'd be writing a book about uh, or addressing scrotal circumference and bowls and things like that? You know, <laughs> I found it so interesting. There are so many things in there that you don't even consider at all. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. This is Chris Beer, your host of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. If this is your first time listening to the show, I wanted to give you a little background info. So I have a personal chef business called Perfect Little Bites, which I've been doing for about 10 years now, uh, but only four years full time. So in the process of building and growing that business, I wanted to start a support network helping other food entrepreneurs uh, build and grow their businesses. So I started an organization called Chefs Without Restaurants. And it's not an organization as much as it is just kind of a a group that lives online where people can lend support and share best practices, resources, and gig opportunities. And out of that grew the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. This podcast started last November, so we're just about, I guess, at the 51-week mark or so. So thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I guess next week will be the one-year episode. So I'll have to think about something cool to do around that. So this week on the show, we have renowned photographer Aliza Eliazarov. Depending on when you listen to this, she is having her new book come out on Tuesday, November 17th. So this episode is dropping the day before the book. The book is called On the Farm, Heritage and Heralded Animal Breeds in Portraits and Stories. The book invites us to take a closer look at the animal breeds taking center stage on sustainable farms and homesteads, and it's equal parts fine art and field guide. I really enjoyed talking with her about the book and the process of taking some of the photos and how that all works. I... I've tried taking pictures of kids, specifically my kids, and I know how tough that can be. So I imagine that taking photos of farm animals was kind of similar, though it might be easier than taking pictures of kids. So we talk about that a little bit. The conversation also dives into uh, eating animals and heritage breeds, some of the health benefits of that, and also why we need to have heritage breeds protected, why they're really important for biodiversity. So there's a lot of talk about the photographs and her process, but there's also talk about 
uh, sustainability, and biodiversity. I really hope you enjoy the show. Please let me know what you think. If you're an iTunes user, we would love for you to rate and review the show. And again, I have recently started the Chefs Without Restaurants email list. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes. And I would also love if you did that as well. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Welcome, everyone. This is Chris Beer with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Today, I have renowned photographer Aliza Eliazarov. On November 17th, she has a book coming out called On the Farm, Heritage and Heralded Animal Breeds in Portraits and Stories. The book invites us to take a closer look at the animal breeds taking center stage on sustainable farms and homesteads. It's equal parts fine art and field guide. Passion for documenting issues surrounding food and farming has driven her work and led to numerous projects, publications, exhibitions, and awards, most notably shooting cover stories for Modern Farmer magazine. Welcome to the show, Eliza. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm excited to talk to you about this. I'm excited to talk to you as well. Thanks. So you're not a chef. This is Chefs Without Restaurants, but we do occasionally have people who are not chefs. You know, I really want to highlight people doing interesting things related to food and cooking, and I think this is definitely one of them. Well, I guess we should start off talking a little bit about how you got here. So you have a BS in natural resources management and engineering, a master's degree in both creative arts in education and elementary education, and you're a graduate of the photojournalism and documentary program at the International Center of Photography. Is that right? That's right. That's quite a diverse background. So where would you like to start? How did you get to making a book about farm animals? Well, I think it kind of, it kind of, in a way, it came full circle. Um, You know, I studied environmental engineering um, in undergrad, and then I started working in in the national parks. I did some work that focused on wildlife preservation and conservation and endangered species work. Um, So it wasn't agriculture, but my, my program at University of Connecticut was in the agricultural school. I was just more focused on preservation and conservation issues. And then I, I got my master's in arts and education. So I always was interested in photography as a way to teach and learn through the arts. So I integrated the arts throughout education. And then um, after years of teaching, I became more and more interested in photography and I started studying photography as I was teaching still. And eventually I just made the shift at 35, I changed careers and I went from being a teach school teacher back to school. When I moved from Los Angeles to New York and went to photo school. So um, yeah. And then it's just kind of been hustling ever since. <laughs> it's interesting the way your career path can change. You know, as someone who's a chef, has a personal chef business now, I'm doing so much media stuff. And it started just as being kind of self-promotional, right? Like mm-hmm. I had to figure out how to get the word out there. So I was working on learning photography so I could take photos of my dishes. And then it turned right. into, you know, blogging so you could get good SEO for your website, for your business. But then you're like, wow, I'm really turning into a media company and now I have a podcast and it's something I actually love doing and thinking about, is there going to be a time where I'm not actually cooking professionally 
to make my money where I'm, you know, maybe doing something like this. And it's just interesting to being open to some of the changes that come along in your life. It's true. Yeah. I think that like, for me, like, as I said, I had this conservation and more of an environmental background, but I started looking at um, kind of agriculture and sustainable agriculture. And then I became, you know, interested in that and used photography to kind of explore those issues, which I never would have predicted, you know, years ago that that would be my path, but you know, it is. (laughs) Well, I think I first became aware of you through Star Chefs. Well, I was their in-house photo editor and photographer for several years. So I did that um, for them. So I, you know, I traveled the country with Star Chefs photographing chefs, uh, bartenders, you know, bakers, whatever, everything, everyone that Star Chefs covers, um, photographing their process, portraits and dishes. And then I was also the the photo director at uh, the International Chefs Congress for a few years. So that seems like kind of a different leap going from photographing uh, chefs to photographing chickens, or maybe it's, maybe it's kind of the same thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I've always been interested in land issues and land use issues. And when it became, when my focus shifted to agricultural issues, then it became food issues, right? So food and food issues. So um, photographing farm animals and animals that are used for food and agricultural issues isn't, you know, it's closely connected with, with photographing food and drink. It just looks really, you know, maybe the photos look quite different. Are there any animals that seem to like having their photos taken? Like, what's it like photographing animals I imagine it's kind of like photographing children. Like it's kind of hard because they don't take direction the way an adult might, but are there any, you know, like do pigs like taking photos or having their photos (laughs) taken or donkeys don't? Have you found anything like that? Oh, um, it is very similar to photographing children. I will have to say Um, every single shoot is completely different. I can't, and every animal is different. So every, every interaction I have with an animal is, is completely unique, I would say. So why heritage breeds uh, as opposed to just regular farm shoots or um, taking photos of animals in feedlots? Like what made you want to, I know I, you, you saw, you kind of cringed there, but I have seen books. I think there's a book called CAFO or something like that, which doesn't seem like a pleasant coffee table book for me to look at, but mm-hmm. you know, what made you want to specifically go out and kind of photograph heritage breeds and mm-hmm. share that with the world? Well, I actually started photographing chickens. The, the chicken, my chicken portrait project work started before I started photographing for star chefs. And it was concurrently, it was a, a personal project I was working on throughout that time. So, um, what came first, the chicken or the, <laughs> the fine dining photos, it was kind of, kind of, um, the chickens actually came first. But, um, I think that what happened for me was that I felt like when, um, in 2009, when the, when I finished photography school and the, we were going through a, a, a crisis, a financial, what's it called? What was it called? <laughs> yeah, do they call that the financial Cut. crisis or crash or whatever? Yeah, the crash. Going, whatever was yeah. going on in 2008 that wasn't good. 
Yeah, yeah. So the the financial crisis hit in late 2008, and I finished photography school in the spring of 2009. So at that time, I started noticing more and more folks turning to to farming, um, leaving cities, young first-generation farmers, either moving to rural areas or starting farms on rooftops around New York City. I lived in New York City, so I was seeing people starting community gardens in abandoned lots. I saw rooftop gardens happening um, and a lot of backyard poultry that was was really just exploding during that time. And a lot of it had to do with skill sharing and social media. So what I was seeing was that people were starting these these Facebook groups or meetup.com groups or whatever it was that were poultry enthusiast groups. And this was, um, it was just this beautiful skill sharing that was happening and empowerment that was happening where people were like, hey, I wanna raise my own chickens for eggs because I don't trust um, I don't understand the difference uh, uh, of labeling. I'm distrustful of um, of what I'm reading on on pack like egg cartons. Um, it's confusing, right? So yeah, I think there was it kind of it was it, there was definitely like the 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 backyard poultry movement um, and this period of people wanting to become more empowered and independent in where their food came from, uh, began raising their own chickens. And so I started photographing these chickens and I traveled around. I joined these backyard and poultry enthusiast groups all around the country from Beverly Hills to New York to wherever. And I met these poultry enthusiasts. I traveled to their coops. I built a photo studio in their coop. And I laid down in the chicken poop and I photographed these chickens. And, and that's kind of where it all started, right? And then from there, um, it kind of grew. And I became more and more interested in, in other animals. And eventually that led to a job shooting the co- stories for Modern Farmer magazine and their cover stories, which was amazing. And then I had the opportunity to just travel all over and meet people who are raising, you know, goats, using draft animal power to power their farms. So I was meeting draft horses. Um, I was photographing bison on ranches, on a ranch in Wisconsin. I got to just experience all of these, meet all of these different farmers. And so my, as, as my, my shoots, as the more I started shooting, the more my interest in photographing heritage breeds. Um, I would say in addition to that, I learned more about biodiversity and the importance of biodiversity and maintaining biodiversity in our livestock and poultry populations. I think the UNFAO said that recently that 26% of our livestock and poultry population is endangered 
in danger of going extinct. And people don't know that. People don't know that there are endangered goats. Yeah, that was that stuck out for me in the book. I think it was like on the very within the first 10 pages and you had as like just on one page of the book and that that really is scary to think that, you know, once they're gone, they're not coming back. That's right. So, you know, like animal, um, like any breed or any species, once they're gone, their unique genetics are, are lost forever. And the reason that we have so many endangered breeds of livestock and poultry is because of industrial farming. I think it's really important to preserve as many of these types as you can. So what are, what are some of the things you're seeing? Like, how does someone get into trying to raise heritage breed animals? Like, do you see a pattern as to why someone decides to kind of go out of their way to, to do that? Well, one thing I have to say is that I think that there are other reasons why heritage breed, different breeds of animal need any kind of animal need to be preserved, included the llama. Um, there are, there's llama, alpaca. There are only two different kinds of alpaca. There's one kind of llama. But the reason that every kind of animal needs to be preserved in various breeds is also when populations go down, when only one... Okay, so the, the really good... Um, explanation that uh, some folks use sometimes to talk about the danger of biodiversity um, loss is the is the potato famine. So the potato famine during the potato fam- the Irish potato famine preceding the Irish potato famine, almost all of Ireland was subsisting on one kind of potato. So when the potato blight happened, all the potatoes were destroyed, leading to mass starvation in Ireland. Now, if various kinds of potatoes were planted and there is more variety in the potato crop, it is possible that some of those potatoes could have been resistant to the blight. And as a result, there would have been increased food security instead of mass starvation. I think it's interesting that the popularity of farming is kind of having a resurgence. I mean, would you Mm -hmm. say that it's having a resurgence or are we seeing more? I mean, you hear the statistic that more and more people are stopping farming, but I guess kind of publicly as someone who's not really involved in that world, I keep seeing more small local farms popping up. So definitely small local farms and homesteading. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I think when you have a magazine like Modern Farmer that's in a grocery store, you know, like Wegmans, I think that's interesting. You know, I, I can't remember prior to that seeing farming magazines in a grocery mm-hmm. store, um, you know, maybe in a rural area. But I think that was really interesting when that came up and like normal people were picking that magazine up to kind of maybe be inspired to start their own little micro farm in their yard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you see that the number of um, if you look at the statistics of just the number of farmers markets that have increased in across America from the seventies until today, it's, it's there, there are thousands and thousands more farmers markets. So that, I think that really speaks to uh, the number of small farms that are 
have incre- the increased number of small farms. I think I've had um, three farmers on the show, none of them dealing with animals, all plants, but the conversation's the same as far as cost. You know, I think one of the big hurdles for people to buy these things are that it inherently costs more. You know, mm-hmm. going to buy commodity pork loin at the grocery yeah. store where, you know, that's $2.99 a pound as opposed to $9.99 a pound for a locally raised uh, heritage breed pig is mm-hmm. a big jump. And like, how do you get people to understand that? I mean, as a chef, I understand it, but I don't think, you know, my yeah. in-laws who are in their 70s understand, nor would they ever pay $10 a pound for a pork chop. Mm-hmm. I think that's a I think that's a, a huge issue facing the small farming community and the regenerative farming community and people who are. Um, I think it's a big issue, you know, and it's something that hasn't been figured out yet. I think also that there's an opportunity to examine your own diet and think of what is your priority. What is, what are, what is your belief system around um, eating meat and what kind of meat you want to eat and where it is sourced, your meat, dairy, and poultry and eggs. And uh, if, if that means eating less meat, but only eating meat that comes, that's better meat. There's a, there's a term in the, in the regenerative farming community, it's, it's not the cow, it's the how. Have you heard that? No, but I like that. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, for this whole book, this whole, this whole project for me is, is, is a personal mission to better, to, to gain a better understanding of, of how food was grown and how food is raised that we that we eat and how animals, what our lives are like with domesticated farm animals that we've been living alongside for the past 10,000 years. And what I've come to personally is that I will only eat meat if I know where it's coming from. And that's how my diet's changed personally from this. You know, I want to know that it's been pasture raised and grass fed. And if it's not, I won't, I won't eat it. So that means eating less meat, but knowing my farmers and knowing how my, my animals are raised and supporting them. Yeah. That's where we are in my household. Actually, when I met my wife 20 years ago, she was a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. So then kind of by default, I became a vegetarian. I was, I was trying out being a vegetarian Uh, about half the week when I met her. And then I switched to full-time and she did it mostly because of ethical issues with, you know, raising and killing animals. We eat meat now, but as we phased it back into our life, that was the discussion is, okay, if we're going to eat meat, let's be more selective about where it's coming from and how it's raised. And we still eat very vegetarian heavy. I mean, last night we had, you know, tofu as our protein at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And, And my kids have now grown up eating that way. So, having a balanced diet and I would rather go spend $10 a pound on locally raised meat that tastes delicious and goes back into the local farm system and and a small family than sending that money to one of these big meat producers. That's right. Yeah. And you know, I've all of my local farmers, the farmers that I've worked with for this book and that are 
that I know have been doing really, really well during COVID because I think that people, um, when the, the big slaughterhouses and meat uh, processing facilities were shut down, people got freaked out when their grocery stores were empty, people freaked out. And where did they turn? They turned to their local farmer which is amazing. And finally, you know? I, hope this, I hope this continues, you know, not that it was like a, a once and done. And now that there's meat back in the grocery store shelves mm-hmm. that they forget about those people. Hopefully they've built some great relationships and they're going to continue buying from them because yeah, I didn't see a meat shortage on the local level. You know, I was still able to get everything that I wanted and that was great. And we talked a a little bit before we started recording about Autumn Olive Farms in Virginia, which is one of my favorites. Um, Clay and Linda, who run it, I think, are doing an amazing job down there. And it's a beautiful place. And and I would encourage people to check out many farms if they can. But I've had the opportunity to go down there and hang out on their farms and see how they're actually raising their pigs. And Mm -hmm. um, it's really interesting because... They're also, I think, doing a really good job with marketing. And in this day and age, I feel like marketing is not everything, but it really helps you. And um, you know, yesterday they hit 10,000 followers on Instagram, which seems unheard of for someone who's running a farm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's really cool. And, and you got to go down to their farm as well and do some photography there, right? Yeah, I photographed um, a few different of their animals. I photographed... Um, Andy, a turkey that they rescued, who's no longer with us, and their dog, Mudflap, who is also no longer with us. But she, um, but the reason we actually went there, besides to photograph Andy, who kind of became the celebrity turkey who fell off a truck um, in this big turkey accident on the highway in Virginia, and was standing on the side of the road for 10 days, um, and they they rescued they rescued Andy and Andy became a bit of a local celebrity. Um, was is that they they raise an endangered breed of of hog the Ostaba Island hog, which comes from uh, one of the small islands off the coast of Georgia, and were probably brought from by the conquistadors and left there for hundreds of years, and so they even though they, they raise Osaba Island hogs and Berkshire hogs and a lot of what they sell, they call Berkaba. So they, it's the, it's a, a mixed breed with the Osaba Island hog, which is very fatty and the, um, and the Berk, the Berkshire hog, which is a very popular breed. And their animals are all raised in silvopasture out in the woods their hogs are building nests and farrowing in the woods. It's it's totally beautiful in nature. They're running around. They are free. There's no cages. These pigs are living their best life. Um, They're eating acorns. They're eating nut. They're eating, you know, things they find on the ground. They're able to um, nest and give birth on, in the trees and live just the most beautiful life. And I think that they're a wonderful example of a successful, a successful farm that is at this, at one time saving, helping to save an endangered breed and 
also um, have a successful farm business. It's like knowing the farmers and knowing that if you support Autumn Olive Farm, if you understand that if you're raising, if you're going to buy some of their burkabas, you're not only getting a great ethically raised cut of meat that is um, from an animal that lived a, a wonderful, like a very wonderful life and had a great diet and were um, was cared for, but you're also helping to save a heritage breed. And that's like, this is the, this is, this is the, the argument for knowing your farmer, right? I don't know with this book, does it make it hard to then eat animals? You know, like you, you look at these animals and they're almost like humanized more, right? I think there is a big disconnect. And this is the conversation I have with people all the time about eating animals is, you know, you want to know where your food comes from and you want to learn these stories a little bit. But then you see this book with these beautiful animals. It's like, I don't know that I want to cook meat tonight after looking through your book. It's like, I just want to hug them. Like they have such great personalities and stories. And I think that is where there's um, some of those challenges. Like people almost don't want to know that their meat was an animal, right? Like that's what I hear from people a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that's, that's what my book is. The book isn't saying eat meat or not eat meat. It's just about consider this animal. Look at this animal. Get to know this animal. What is your relationship with this animal? What do you know about this animal? Um, what What is your history like with this these animals? Even your ancestry. Um, and what does your present look, life look like um, in connection with these animals? And how does that how do, how do you see your possible future connected with domesticated animals? Will that change from the present? Um, it's not a call to action to eat better meat or to eat meat or to not eat meat. It's just, it's more of an opportunity for folks to see these animals up close and consider them for maybe the first time I think that a lot of folks maybe haven't ever considered a turkey, you know, or thought about a goat or looked at several different photos of a goat to see how different each breed looks and why, or to even understand how farm animals, even livestock and poultry arrived in America. People, folks don't know. You don't, you know, how would you know unless you really thought about it, you know? Yeah, I've never thought, I've never thought about it. I have no idea where goats yeah, came from. Yeah, they weren't here, yeah. you know? So, so when, before, before the Colombian exchange, before Columbus and the conquistadors came to the, you know, quote unquote, new world, the only domesticated animals were the llama and the alpaca in South America who were domesticated by the indigenous folks there. The Muscovy duck who was domesticated in Mexico and, and southwest of uh, the southwest part of America, what is now America, and turkeys, um, which were semi-domesticated by different um, 
native peoples here in the in what is now the US. And besides that, there was nothing, there were no other domesticated animals here. On Columbus's second voyage in 1493, he brought a farm. He brought the first cattle to this part of the world. He brought horses that were used as weapons of war. They brought hogs, they brought goats, and they brought sheep. So all of these animals were introduced only then, and then more came over with settler colonizers who came to settle Jamestown in Virginia and the Plymouth, Mass Plymouth Bay colonies in Massachusetts. They started bringing more, more like British and you know Irish and uh, you know other kinds of animals. And then in Canada, they brought different kinds of horses and oxen animals over from France, but they weren't here before. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, you know, you think that. Um, I mean, you look at um, the Navajo blankets that were, they were famous, that Navajo are, are, are famous for their wool, their elaborate patterns and wool blankets. Well, the sheep were introduced by the conquistadors and only after that did they start making elaborate weavings with wool. So I want to talk a little bit about your process for photographing the animals and what that's like. You did mention briefly about uh, laying in a chicken coop uh, in chicken poop. What's the, what's the process of taking these photos look like? So um, to photograph animals, I travel to every farm and I build an onset studio, either in a barn, a shed or a stable. Um, I bring in strobe lighting and backdrops, and I always photograph the animal against either a black backdrop or a white backdrop um, to give the viewer an opportunity to really, really look at the animal and be able to observe and consider the animal and connect with the animal without the distraction of an environmental portrait. I also feel that making a formal studio portrait of what is considered a, a common farm animal, animals that are not usually revered and being able to elevate them through formal portraiture helps really give an opportunity for viewers to, to look at these animals and consider the animals in a new way. Yeah, you definitely get personality from them. I mean, I don't know anything about photographing animals. I mean, I do a little with people, but you know, like this, uh, this weekend, we went to Chincoteague and Assateague uh, <gasps> here and, and I took some photos of the horses. I mean, I got, I got probably closer than I should have been within like five feet. And at, at one point I said to my daughter, like, we have to back up because there was a baby there. And I feel like dad was not loving how close we were but you take photos of them, but it's the backdrop, you know, there's the trees there and all this stuff. And it's like, like an okay photo, like, oh, I was near the horses. But when I look at the photos of, you know, the animals that you have, you can really see the personality, like it looks like some, some of them are laughing, or you can just see like, 
the depth in their eyes. And you really did capture photos of animals the way that I think a good portrait photographer would capture photos of people. So I, mm-hmm. I think it really stood out. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, I take um, on set, I'm very quiet, I'm very patient, and I try to take my time to let the animal feel comfortable in the studio space because at first it, it's an unfamiliar space for them. And I, I wait for that connection. And I, through like uh, just observing them and watching them for minutes, I think that I start seeing their personalities kind of emerge. And when I see their personalities emerge is when the best portraits are made. And when there is a connection between myself and the animal, that is when a good portrait is made. And there, the individual animal's personality really shines through. How do you pick the particular animal? When you get to a farm, does the farmer know who he wants to have the photo taken of? Or do you kind of like wander around and and try and see them in their natural environment and get an idea? How does that work? The collaborative process with the farmer, we work together to kind of talk about the animals. We'll we'll do a little farm tour the farmer will say, well, I think this animal is going to be really great because they've got a great personality or they were a bottle baby or this one's really docile. And I think that they're, they'll be the easiest to, to get a great photo of. But I have never, without fail, I've never been on a shoot where the farmer hasn't been completely surprised at who was the good subject and the best model and who didn't work out at all at every shoot, there's one cover girl, like supermodel, superstar that shines and it's never who the farmer expects it to be. So I think that's always really interesting. So as you look at marketing this book, who is this book for? Do you have an idea of who your target audience is? Is this a art and photography book? Is it a farm history? I mean, I understand it's a little of both, but as you think about how you're going to get this out in the world? Who do you Mm -hmm. think is going to be the ones picking this book up? I think it's anyone who's a a photography lover, a farm, a a farm lover, an animal lover, people who are eco-conscious consumers, people who are interested in sustainability and sustainability issues, farming issues, people who are looking into getting into homesteading and raising animals. I think all of the above, you know? And you're going to be doing a book tour for this on the farms. Is that right? Or something like that? Or Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 So because of COVID, since, um, <laughs> since like a real in, in life, real life IRL book tour isn't happening, we decided to make lemonade out of lemons. And so we're going to travel around to all of our farms that we photographed on and um, do a farm friends story time on the farm. And I'm going to read the book to the sheep and the cows and the donkeys. And- That's amazing. <laughs> sounds like the best book tour ever. I mean, you got to no. do what you got to do. You might have better results than like these weird virtual book talks anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. Hang out with the animals. Totally. So I'm sure, you know, not to play favorites, but are there any particular animals that stand out for you that you really loved or there's a great story? Like, yeah. what are some of the 
what are some of the stories from these animal encounters that you have? Well, I fall in love with every animal I photograph. I feel like in order to make a good photo and a good portrait of these animals, I have to have some kind of a connection. So I do feel a connection to every single animal. Um, it's like kind of asking to pick your favorite kid or something like that. Um, but I'm very fond of donkeys. I think they're so soulful. They live for 50, they can live up to 50 years. They're so long lived. They're such, they just, they're, they're soul. They're just these gentle souls. I, I love I love donkeys. I um, I love how magical turkeys are. I mean, watching a turkey perform a mating ritual is magic is a magical thing to witness. I think um, watching their their snood on the top of their beak extend and their waddle change colors and puff and drum their wings on the ground and fan their feathers. I, I mean, I just think it's the most amazing thing to see. Um, yeah. Did you ever think you'd be writing a book about uh, or addressing scrotal circumference and bowls and things like that? You know, <laughs> I found it so interesting. There are so many things in there that you don't even consider at all. Like you have no idea what the mating rituals of animals are. So I'm glad that you put some of those little tidbits in the book. Yeah, I know. I'm really, actually, it sounds weird, but I'm really into animal, like mating ritual behavior. I think it's some of the most fascinating um, research I've done is around their, around the mating, mating rituals of different animals. And uh, yeah, like the turkey is, is magical and that, um, you know, goats pee all over their faces. <laughs> so they, yeah, I read, so they pee all over their own faces? Yeah, yeah. That seems like a feat. I don't even know if I could do that to myself if I had to. I, I'm just try- <laughs> I mean, I guess they're maybe a little more flexible or the way they lay down. Yeah, I read that part in the book where it's like they pee over their faces and then they get it on. Yeah, yeah. Right? They pee all over themselves, honestly. But it's like the pheromones that are released in the urine is um, is really turns turns the the gals on this is such a such a far foray from photographing chefs and food isn't it <laughs> it really is although based on some of the never mind based on some of the stories we've heard on some bad behavior maybe it isn't so far removed from chefs and restaurants <laughs> right oh it's true well, and, you, and you have a story about a pig who is a fan of mojitos is that right yeah well there's <laughs> princess peppermint the feminist pig lives on at Wing and a Prayer Farm in Vermont. And she doesn't see well, and she doesn't hear quite great. But pigs have, you know, just the way a pig is built, they can somehow sometimes climb upstairs, but can't climb downstairs. So Princess Peppermint sometimes climbs up the stairs to the farmhouse to the back patio of the farmhouse, to like the deck, to to say hi to the farmer. <laughs> sure, why not? But when she's up there, she can't get, she doesn't know it, she can't get down. She gets like scared or like her vision, she can't really see and figure out or, you know, she, she's going to take a tumble down the stairs. She, I think she was afraid. So 
um, there was um, this, there's a story in the book about Tammy, the farmer, um, when she encountered, when she couldn't get peppermint down the stairs because she was just scared and scared. She just like couldn't figure out how to get this pig down the stairs. And then she was like, oh, I just need to calm her nerves a little bit. So she stirred up a little mojito and the two of them had a little drink together and it did the trick. It just calmed her down enough that she could walk down the stairs. <laughs> that's a, I mean, like, that's a great story there. I, I wonder how often things like that happen. I'm sure more often than you'd realize. Yeah, I think so. I think just farmers are just such problem solvers that they just are always kind of coming up with different um, whatever solutions. Do you find most of them are giving all of their animals names or a good portion of their animals names as much as they can? It, it really depends. It depends whether or not the animals are going to be used for food or not. A lot of farmers won't name animals that are going to be used for food. Animals that are fiber animals on small farms, um, they'll name. And a lot of animals on, you know, some of the animals, there's always a selection of like bottle babies on farms that end up getting named and who will never be food because they become pets because they were bottle babies. What else would you like to share before we get out of here today? Is there anything we didn't get into? Well, I think that I would say that like, if there are listeners that are interested in learning more about heritage breeds or wondering how they can like, support farmers who are raising heritage breeds or are considering having raising a few animals of their own, is that they should check out um, my book and also the Livestock Conservancy, which is really in the U.S. is a great source for learning more about heritage breed animals. Also, the Slow Food Arc of Taste, which has a really wonderful directory and is a wonderful resource for getting to know what not only animals are endangered, but also produce plants that they can eat that are heirloom or endangered varieties of edible plants. I think that would be really wonderful for your people to know. And I think also it's like, just like with people with like chefs, your listeners, if they're also chefs without restaurants that because I think it's possible that because they do not have, they're not in a restaurant and have the constraints um, that a restaurant faces, that there is an opportunity for um, a caterer or a personal chef to really support a small farm who is possibly raising heritage breeds. There, there really is um, an eat them to save them idea out there that in order to save heritage breeds, we have to create a market for these heritage breeds. And knowing your local farm and knowing what they're raising is a great way to support biodiversity in our and increase food security, both in your community and in the world, you know? And I think Global food security is such an issue right now that anything that folks can do to support 
their local farmer who is most likely raising a few breeds that aren't commercial breeds is a wonderful thing. I think also it could be interesting to talk about the difference between what a heritage breed and a commercial breed. I'm not sure that folks understand exactly what a heritage breed is and how they differ from a commercial breed. You know, I know a lot about pigs because it seems like most of the people I know who are raising animals around here for, for food are raising pigs. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that the fat in a heritage breed pig I think I'm correct here, has the highest percent of natural vitamin D of anything out there. And that's because they're out in the sun and their fat is absorbing it through their skin. So, you know, you think of eating uh, fat as not being good. Well, if you're eating a pig that is in a feedlot and in a, you know, a house all days, that's not the same as a pig who's out in nature doing that. And the fact that, yes, if you get this nice heritage breed pork chop and it has this big you know one inch of fat on there that that fat actually has a lot more nutrition than if you were to eat you know a pork chop that comes from smithfield or something like that and and that's something that i've picked up talking to people on their farms yeah i think also just having like a basic understanding of the difference between what a commercial breed uh, looks like and why why they were developed. They were developed to feed the masses. You know, when when the when farming was industrialized in the 30s, after and especially in the in the 1940s, as we grew into an industrialized nation, there was this there was this idea that we needed a better a bigger and better food system to feed more people, and that's when the business of agriculture turned into big business and we left the small farm and the farm became a factory and big business was farming. That's why it was like a farm factory. So, and because, and when this happened, so this like whole idea was that because we started these giant farm factories that we needed um, to feed more people, there was this push to develop animals that grew faster, grew bigger, produced more milk, produced more eggs, produced, you know, huge breasts, all of these things that, um, that were developed through breeding practices to create these commercial breeds. These breeds also then were raised because they were raised in like feedlots and factory farms. Um, They'd never seen the outdoors. They never grazed. And over generations they lost their maternal instincts they lost they were because they're being fed antibiotics regularly they lost their hardiness and their ability to be parasite resistant they lost their ability to be good mothers so the difference between an important difference between these these animals is that a heritage breed animal is independent, can live in nature outdoors, can forage independently, can give birth naturally and mother their young and are disease resistant. And these are all really important traits for 
an animal to have. It seems like in some respects, it's almost easier. Like if they're out foraging for their own food, that's one less thing you kind of have to do too. It's like you don't have to be so meticulous about feeding them. If you have pigs living in your little wooded area and they can just kind of go about and, and eat when they're ready to eat, that also seems like it's somewhat easier in some respects and less expensive. You're not building gigantic you know, concrete structures and so forth. So it seems like it would also be somewhat beneficial. But you just see these animals seem to be happier, right? When they're living in their own environment. They're incredibly happier, I think, and that if they're eating what they're meant to eat, then instead of a diet that they are not meant to eat, industrial raised cows on CAFOs, on feedlots, or, you know, they're fed corn that's laced with antibiotic. That's not a natural diet for a cow. You know, they're not. And the cat, the, how is that corn raised? That corn is grown on giant monoculture lots <laughs> that are, um, you know, pumped with herbicides that are derived from chemical components that pollute our environment, our water, our soil, deplete the soil, contribute to erosion, contribute to disease of both farmers and wildlife and humans. They're carcinogenic. They contribute to climate change. All of this is connected to the in the raising of commercial breeds on an, in industrialized farms. It's a much bigger conversation than you can tackle in a <laughs> in a one hour podcast, right? I mean, it's something I've been looking at for years, and yeah, yeah, trying to do my part. So I'm going to try and share resources with our listeners, you know, in the show notes and, and point them in the right direction. What I love is after the podcast, a lot of times these conversations spill out into forums on the internet or even, you know, text messages with people and trying to spread the word because I'm a believer in this. So I'm so mm-hmm. glad you could come and talk about this with, with me and I can share this with the world. Thanks for having me. So where can people find the book? What's the, what's the best way for people to pick this up? Uh, the book is where it's wherever you buy books. So it'll be everywhere. It's everywhere. It's at your. It's at Barnes and Noble on BarnesandNoble.com on Amazon.com at your local independent bookstore. You could request it from your um, independent bookstore. Um, it was published by Ten Speed Press, which is part of uh, Penguin Random House. So um, it's it's out there in the world, and uh, wherever you buy books. And what's the best way for people to connect with you? Do you want people to find you somewhere on the internet? Yeah, always. If, if they wanted to follow me on Instagram, it's aliza.eliazarov on Instagram. And um, alizaeliazarov.com is my website. Yeah, and I'm, I'm here. And I'll link all that up in the show notes so they can just click on. It'll be really easy for them. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate this. Uh, I enjoyed talking about this and, and I love the book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Even though I'm not a chef without a restaurant. I'm a I'm a photographer without a, a, an, a I don't know without a book tour. <laughs> yeah, you know the show, the show is about um, kind of the the independent uh, entrepreneurial spirit of people working in all yeah. things affiliated with food and restaurants. I mean, you're definitely part of the whole ecosystem, and I just love mm. talking to people and sharing the stories of people who are doing interesting things that aren't you know 
there's a lot of amazing chefs in restaurants and I, I don't knock that, but there's a lot mm -hmm. of really cool people doing things related to food and beverage and hospitality that just mm -hmm. aren't related to being like a line cook or a chef in a restaurant. And that's what we're trying to do here on this show. Yeah, it's great. So for all of our listeners, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.